I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Numbers chapters 14 and 15, and then also Psalm 90. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. In Numbers chapter 13, the spies return from looking over Canaan, and they bring back the report. And we have the aftermath of that here in Numbers chapter 14. We find that these are some pretty angry people that they've reported back to. Verse 1. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said one to another, Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, and they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. Now when you look for the really big moments in Israel's history, well, here, right here, you have one of the biggest, if not the biggest. As a result of this day's activities, a whole generation of Israelites are condemned to physical death because of this incident of rebellion. It's a remarkable rebellion. Try to put yourself into their shoes. They'd been in the wilderness living in tents for over a year, looking forward to their move into their promised land. Now, after the return of the spies in Numbers chapter 13, they discover that somebody already lives there, big, giant people, and they won't want to leave so the Hebrews can move in. Obviously, they're disappointed, well, maybe even devastated. Okay, it's all right to be disappointed, but... But what you do after disappointing news, that's what's very important. Well, these Hebrews, they begin to murmur against Moses, Aaron, and God. Joshua and Caleb try to explain that the presence of people living in Canaan already is a good discovery. In verse 9, they point out that because of their presence, bread, meaning sustenance or provisions, already exists in Canaan to assist the Hebrews in their new habitation. However, that argument doesn't fly with these Hebrew rebels. Then comes the deal-breaker. They determine to appoint their own leader to take them back to Egypt. In addition, this angry mob of Hebrews began to organize a stoning to take care of Joshua and Caleb for good. Why is that? What they have against Joshua and Caleb? 
Well, they objected to Joshua and Caleb's positive report and their recommendation to obey God and proceed to Canaan despite the presence of its giant inhabitants. Now, here's a question. Is this an attempt to substitute a democracy in place of rule by God, which is a theocracy? God shows up in the nick of time, though, in the next section of Scripture, in verses 11 through 25. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? How long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear it, for by your might you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands above them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard of your fame will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land which he swore to give them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly, as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, then certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley, tomorrow turn, and move out into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Well, this angry mob of Hebrews would have pursued their mutiny had the glory of the Lord not shown up right there in their midst. And God tells Moses that he's ready to just wipe out the whole congregation and start all over again with a whole new batch of Hebrews. Hey, doesn't this discussion sound familiar? Let's recall what God told Moses after the calf-worshipping incident back in Numbers chapter 32. Here's what he said in verses 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Now, look at what he says here in Numbers chapter 14, verse 12. I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Well, once again, Moses here pleads for them just as he did back when Aaron made that golden calf. I think it's worth noting the rationale Moses uses with God in verses 13 through 16. That's where he points out to God that the negative publicity that God himself will receive among the heathen nations if he wipes the Hebrews out here is going to be kind of detrimental. 
Moses seems quite comfortable negotiating with God on this occasion. So here's the compromise deal. No death to all the Hebrews right now. But all those men who rebelled will die in the wilderness without reaching Canaan. One exception is mentioned here, Caleb, and another, Joshua, is mentioned a few verses later in verse 38. Now, notice that the carefully selected words of Moses in verse 18 include a quotation from the text of the second of the Ten Commandments, one that expresses a principle of God's judgment. Here's what Moses refers to in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. It says, You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. And then also we find it stated again in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. As a matter of fact, this principle is mentioned yet again by God himself in his appearance to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. Here's what those verses say, verses 6 and 7. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Well, by quoting God here, Moses seems to be saying that he understands that there will be consequences that very well should extend to future generations. But please, God, don't wipe out the Hebrew nation completely. Moses' bargaining chip here seems to be that God had never mentioned previously that the consequences of rebellion would include extermination, just extended chastisement. Moses follows this statement in verse 19 with this, Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. In other words, God, you never told us that rebellion would result in extermination. Therefore, please punish us according to your previously stated decrees. So, how did Moses' negotiations with God work out here? Well, God's renegotiated decree is found in verses 20 and 21. Here's what it says. I have pardoned according to your word, but truly, as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Whew, what a relief. The Hebrews can live after all. Okay, after dodging that bullet, let's see what the punishment will be. And that's found in the next two verses, verses 22 and 23. No rest in their new homeland for this whole generation of existing men. Now, for the that's-not-fair crowd, let's notice what God said in verses 22 and 23. Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. God makes a point that after this huge punishment on the whole generation of men, it's not simply because of this incident, but rather, God says, 
It's a 10-event accumulation of disobedience, of rebellion. Hmm, wonder what those 10 occasions of Israel's rebellion would be. Well, let's look at the list. The first would be Israel's distrust and rebuke of Moses at the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. And then at Merah, when they were thirsty and murmured against Moses, that's recorded in Exodus chapter 15. Then they murmured again against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness of Sin, where they were hungry in Exodus chapter 16. Number four, they dismissed God's command regarding keeping manna overnight, and that's in Exodus chapter 16. Number five, they also dismissed God's command on gathering manna on the Sabbath day, and that's also recorded in Exodus chapter 16. Number six, they murmured against Moses at Rephidim when they were thirsty once again in Exodus chapter 17. Then there's that golden calf incident at Horeb in Exodus chapter 32. Then the fire from the Lord at Taborah because of their complaining in Numbers chapter 11. And then another episode of complaining about hunger in Numbers chapter 11 in verse 4. The first one was in verse 1. And then finally, the mutiny attempt after the return of the spies right here in Numbers chapter 14. As you can see, this generational death sentence was well-deserved for repeated rebellion, not just for one act of defiance against God. Well, as a result of God's decree on this day, Israel makes a U-turn back into the wilderness at God's command. At this point in time, God commands Moses in verse 25, he says this, Tomorrow, turn and move out into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. This, by the way, begins the 38-plus years of Israel's moving from camp to camp in the wilderness, waiting for this generation of men who rejected God to die off. This official decree and specifics are found beginning in verse 26, which we're going to look at in just a moment. Now, let me say a word about the uh, 40-year decree in the wilderness. It actually turns out to be 38-plus years from this point forward. These were men, fighting men, those who were counted in the census. It didn't include women. They didn't have to die off before they could enter the Promised Land. And it did not include Levites. Now, I've written an article entitled The Canaan Spies in the Forty Years and Were Women and Levites Exempt from the Decree is the subtitle to that. And you can read the article and see that. Indeed, women, children, and Levites were excluded from that decree. God's official decree is given to Moses and Aaron in Numbers chapter 14, beginning with verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from twenty years old and above except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and bear the brunt of your infidelity, until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. 
according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days. For each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely forty years, and you shall know my rejection. I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. Now the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report of the land, those very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive of the men who went to spy out the land. Well, forty years in the wilderness is the penalty for their disobedience. In a casual read, it's not clear whether the decree in verse 29 means that all the Hebrews, men and women, twenty years of age and older, will die in the wilderness, or whether it's just the men. However, if you stick with the exact wording, it says that just the men were held accountable. Now, pardon me for conjecturing, but I just can't imagine a rebellion against a leadership of this magnitude without the Hebrew women being right there in the thick of it, stomping their feet and issuing their own set of decrees, if to no one else, but at least to their own husbands. However, based upon scriptures found here in Deuteronomy chapters 1 and 2, it appears conclusive that only the fighting men counted in the census above the age of 20 would die off over the 40-year period, except for Joshua and Caleb. Now, that being the case, this decree did not apply to Levites or women. And again, let me mention the article entitled The Canaan Spies and the 40 Years. It's in the topic section of BibleTrack.org. And there you'll be able to get more information on this explanation as far as uh, why I'm convinced that neither Levites nor women and children were included in this decree. But finally, here's what we see, a day for a year. That's the time that's to lapse. The spies spent 40 days spying out Canaan, and it'll be 40 years of travel before the Hebrews will actually reach Canaan. Oh, and what about those 10 spies who brought about this rebellion? Well, notice verse 37. Those very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. The Hebrew word there translated plague in that verse is sometimes translated blow or slaughter. It appears from this verse that these infamous ten were immediately stricken at this time as an immediate evidence of God's wrath. Incidentally, the best Canaan proposition the people ever had was the one that was outlined in Exodus chapter 23. In that passage, God had promised to send an angel before them into Canaan to clear the land. However, after the golden calf incident of Exodus chapter 32, God withdrew that provision of the angel preceding them into the land in Exodus chapter 33, verses 2 and 3. After that incident, Moses negotiated with God to get God's presence to accompany them in Exodus chapter 33, verse 14. Now, however, the people have rebelled once again, delaying their entry into Canaan for another 38-plus years. So then we have Israel's reply to this bad news, beginning in verse 39. They've changed their minds. Verse 39. Then Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. 
And they rose early in the morning and went up to the top of the mountain, saying, Here we are, and we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. And Moses said, Now why do you transgress the command of the Lord? For this will not succeed. Do not go up, lest you be defeated by your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned away from the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the mountaintop. Nevertheless, neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed from the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in that mountain came down and attacked them and drove them back as far as Hormah. Well, you can imagine that they took the news of their impending deaths quite badly, especially after witnessing the immediate deaths of the ten spies who brought about the evil report. By the next day, they're changing their minds. They decide to go into Canaan and fight against those Amalekites and other Canaanites. But Moses warns them that it's just too late. He says, God won't be with you if you do that. Moses is very clear with his words in verse 42. He says, Do not go up, lest you be defeated by your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. They once again ignore the warning of Moses. Big old defeat as a result. Well, there's a lesson here. Saying, I'm sorry, doesn't necessarily restore circumstances back to the way they were before the disobedience. Let's face it. It's better not to disobey in the first place. The narrative of Israel's wanderings that began back in Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, comes to an end. Numbers 10 through 14 serve to give us the circumstances whereby Israel's arrival in Canaan was delayed by nearly 39 years. Now, in chapter 15, we leave that rebellion narrative and we look at the offering specification for after you reach Canaan. Verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have come into the land you are to inhabit, which I am giving to you, and you make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice, to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering, or in your appointed feast, to make a sweet aroma to the Lord from the herd or the flock, then he who presents his offering to the Lord shall bring a grain offering of one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of oil. And one-fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering you shall prepare with the burnt offering or the sacrifice for each lamb. Or for a ram you shall prepare as a grain offering two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-third of a hen of oil. And as a drink offering you shall offer one-third of a hen of wine as a sweet aroma to the Lord. And when you prepare a young bull as a burnt offering, or as a sacrifice to fulfill a vow, or as a peace offering to the Lord, then shall be offered with the young bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with half a hen of oil. And you shall bring as the drink offering half a hen of wine as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Thus it shall be for each young bull, for each ram, for each lamb or young goat, according to the number that you prepare, so you shall do with everyone according to their number. All who are native-born shall do these things in this manner, in presenting an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And if a stranger dwells with you, or whoever is among you throughout your generations, and will present an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so shall he do. 
One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly and for the stranger who dwells with you, an ordinance forever throughout your generations. As you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One law and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land to which I bring you, then it will be, when you eat of the bread of the land, that you shall offer up a heave offering to the Lord. You shall offer up a cake of the first of your ground meal as a heave offering. As a heave offering of the threshing floor, so shall you offer it up. Of the first of your ground meal, you shall give to the Lord a heave offering throughout your generations. Well, as I mentioned, the narrative of Israel's travels that began back in Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, it's interrupted here for some legal content. Leviticus chapters 1 through 7 present the basic standards of offerings for the Hebrews, paying close attention to those sacrifices that deal with the issue of sin and guilt. The offerings here in Numbers chapter 15 are special in that they relate more to the desire of the Hebrew believer for spontaneous, grateful response to his personal relationship with God. Notice that the wording in verse 3 seems to indicate an individual willingness. Much of what we see here is seen also in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7. It's interesting to see that the specifications of these sacrifices also apply to a stranger. In verse 14, we see that, a stranger who lives among the Hebrews. In other words, there was not to be one law for the Hebrews and another law for the non-Hebrews. The hen mentioned in verse 5 was an Egyptian measurement equal to about a gallon. You'll notice in verses 14 through 16 that no differentiation in these sacrifices is to be made with regard to the non-Hebrew stranger. The same procedures apply to all, a point made again down in verses 29 through 31. So what about sins of ignorance, beginning with Numbers chapter 15, verse 22? If you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by the hand of Moses from the day the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then it will be, if it is unintentionally committed, without the knowledge of the congregation, that the whole congregation shall offer one young bull as a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its drink offering, according to the ordinance, and one kid of the goats as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for the whole congregation of the children of Israel, and it shall be forgiven them, for it was unintentional. They shall bring their offering, an offering made by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their unintended sin. It shall be forgiven the whole congregation of the children of Israel and the stranger who dwells among them, because all the people did it unintentionally. And if a person sins unintentionally, then he shall bring a female goat in its first year as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for the person who sins unintentionally, when he sins unintentionally before the Lord, to make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. You shall have only one law for him who sins unintentionally, for him who is native-born among the children of Israel, and for the stranger who dwells among them. But the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he is a native-born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among his people." Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. 
Well, a distinction is made here between deliberate and unintentional sin. Sacrifices are specified for the unintentional sin. But verses 30 and 31 make it plain that the one who commits intentional sin is to be cut off from among his people. What does that mean? Well, this phrase, or a variation thereof, is used a lot in the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. At a minimum, cut off means to be kicked out of the tribe of Israel. What follows this statement in this passage would indicate that it means something more than that here. We're going to look at that in Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 through 36 in just a few moments. Now, according to the notes that we find in the Jewish Study Bible, that soul shall utterly be cut off is explained as follows. And I'm quoting now from an entry in the Jewish Study Bible. Carrot, the cutting off of a person, is a punishment enacted by the divine. What constitutes the punishment is not defined here, but can be gleaned from other biblical passages which indicate punishments affecting both the sinner and his progeny, as in Malachi chapter 2, verse 12, and Psalm chapter 109, verse 13. Traditional Jewish interpretation includes childlessness, early death, and or the death of the soul together with the body at the time of death. Now, that's the end of the quotation from the Jewish Study Bible. By the way, you'll notice, as we mentioned in the previous section, that one law applied to the Hebrews and strangers alike. This is seen in verses 14 through 16, and again here in verses 29 through 31. We have a sobering account of an incident that took place in Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 through 36. Turns out you work on the Sabbath, you die. Verse 32. Now, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, The man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So, as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died. Well, here's the deal. There was a plainly stated law in Exodus chapter 35, verses 2 and 3, and here it is. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death." You shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. But that wasn't the first warning. Back in Exodus chapter 31, verse 14, it had been previously decreed the following. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. What's not specified in either passage is, who does the execution, God or a delegation of Hebrew executioners. So here's this man gathering a little firewood. What's the harm in that? I mean, just because it's Saturday, I mean, what's the harm? The people who found him, they don't know what to think about it either, so they brought him before Moses and Aaron. He apparently had not actually kindled the fire yet. Surely they were thinking over the intentional, unintentional decree just given to them in verses 24 through 31, they're just not certain what should be done with this Sabbath firewood gatherer. So they lock him up for the time being to consult God. And then the decree comes down from God. Stone him to death. Now let me say, 
If you're one who feels bound to keep the law of Moses, then don't slight commandment number four regarding the Sabbath day. Obviously, it's a very important commandment. If you'd like additional information regarding the Jewish practice of observing the Sabbath and uh, how that relates to believers today, then look at my article under the topic section of BibleTrack.org entitled, The Sabbath Day. In Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 to 41, we find the passage that has some New Testament implications. In the Gospels, fringe is in. Verse 37. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel, that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, and that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined, and that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Well, this ancient fashion statement is still the rage. Orthodox Jews today are still adamant about observing this law. This uh, Hebrew word for fringe is zitzit, and that's what today's Jews actually call it. As a matter of fact, this law is particularly significant in light of the two occasions where the people just wanted to touch the zitzit of Jesus' garment in Matthew chapter 9, verse 20, and Matthew chapter 14, verse 36. This fringe from the garment was considered very sacred. After all, it was decreed by God himself to be worn in this very passage. Now, here's an explanation of this fringe, which uh, I've taken an excerpt out of the um, Jewish Study Bible. And I quote from the Jewish Study Bible, The fringes are tassels on the corners of the outer garments called the Israelites to action regarding the fulfillment of the commandments. Remembering the Hebrew zakar is often a verb of action rather than simply thought. In antiquity, fringes were common on Canaanite and Mesopotamia dress. Prophets from the Babylonian city of Moriah legitimated their oracles before the king by sending a fringe from their garment, which is a symbolic way of sending part of themselves like a signature. The imprinting of fringes on clay tablets, like the touching of the fringe of the prayer shawl to the Torah today, when one is called to the Torah during its reading, is a way of verifying or endorsing the written document. Like garments and hair, fringes are considered part of the individual's identity, and by giving them to the ruler, a person is pledging his loyalty. It is no accident that the violet-blue wool cord that must be attached to the fringes is identical to the cord that hangs from the priest's headdress. In Exodus chapter 28, verse 37, the zitzit on the garments of Israelites identifies them as being holy to God and symbolically connects them to the priest. Thereby, Israelites pledge their loyalty to God as well as to the priest who oversee the laws. Modern prayer shawls and the small tallet worn daily under the skirt by observant Jews no longer require a blue-violet cord for their zitzit. That aspect of the commandment was suspended in the Talmudic times because of the scarcity and expense of the blue dye derived from the murex snail. Most likely because of the reference to observe all my commandments, this paragraph came to be recited daily as part of the Shema prayer in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And that's the end of the quote from the Jewish Study Bible. 
It's worth noting that these five verses are included in the Jewish Shema, along with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, and Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 through 21. Observant Jews down through the centuries to today have worn a leather wallet called a tefillin on the arm and on their head that contained these prayers. Today they wear these during prayer time, but the Pharisees seem to have worn them all the time. These verses are also encased in the mezuzah, that's a small box, that's placed on the doorpost of a traditional Jewish home. Jews feel that this practice is mandated in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Now, if you want to know more about that, look at my notes, the commentary on Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now we're going to move over to um, a psalm, Psalm 90. It's a prayer of Moses, the man of God, we see in the subtitle, verse 1. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up, and the evening is cut down and withers. We have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We have finished our years like a sigh. For the days of our lives are seventy years, and if by reason of strength they are eighty years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow." For it is soon cut off, and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, The years in which we have seen evil, let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Now, this is the only psalm that's specifically subtitled as belonging to Moses. While it's not possible to say with certainty, this seems a likely occasion that Moses prayed this prayer before God, especially what we see in light of verse 7, where he says, For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. So it certainly seems that Numbers 14 is the setting for this prayer of Moses. Well, the lesson here is simple. Accept God's provision and move on in his direction. Perhaps Peter was thinking of Psalm chapter 90, verse 4 here, when he wrote his second epistle. Now this verse, verse 4 says, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. Here's what Peter says in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, speaking of years, Moses comments on the average lifespan in verse 10 when he says this, The days of our lives are seventy years, and if by reason of strength they are eighty years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow for it is soon cut off and we fly away well that's 70 to 80 years old on the average that he's talking about 
Interestingly enough, Moses lived to be 120, and Aaron lived to be 122. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.